for those of you who don't know it, I am a United States veteran. Uh, I was in the I was in the real service, the United States Army. Uh, you know, so all of you Navy and Marine and Air Force guys, and I don't know if we have any Coast Guarders, um, but uh, you know, we all couldn't be in the Army. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. So uh, this is just going to start a battle. Sometimes I'm not the wisest guy in the world. Or maybe I am being a wise guy. I don't know. Depends on the tone of voice you say when you say wise guy, right? So anyways, um, while I was in the Army, I spent eight and three quarters years in the Army, and I was in the Signal Corps. We did an inordinate amount of field training exercises. Being in the Signal Corps, and, and especially at my last duty station at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, I was a part of the 101st Airborne Division Air Assault. And, uh, boy, I just thought I was going to get a hula or something there. Uh, but uh, anyways, when, when I was a part of that, uh, we were one signal battalion for an entire division. And, in, and how it worked was there was different companies inside the battalion that supported the different brigades, but Charlie Company, the company that I was in, had the only satellite communications platoon. And I don't mean satellite communications like maybe some folks in the military are thinking, where you're talking about the little one-man radio that shoots up to the satellite. No, I'm talking major terminal that would fill a room, you know, set on the back of a five-ton truck, would do video teleconferencing, SIPRNET and NIPRNET, which is secure and non-secure internet, all of those kind of things. We had, so we were the only company or the only platoon, satellite platoon, for the entire division. So basically, every time there was anybody's brigade was going out to the field, my platoon had to go out. It was just ridiculous. And the way it worked is that... It, the Signal Corps didn't ever want to not be able to communicate, so we would go out and do exercises to get ready for the exercise, to get ready for the exercise that got us ready just in case there was a real-world mission. Like, I spent more time in the field than most of the infantry guys did by a long shot, because they were in a brigade, and they would go out when it was their brigade's turn, but I had to go out when it was every brigade, or yeah, every brigade's turn. So it was just crazy, right? So we had, we had practices for the practices for the practices. It was just a crazy cycle. I mean, this was so crazy that when I... Just to you to get the idea of how often we practiced. When I was, I was on a real-world deployment to Kosovo, got back, from, got back from Kosovo and immediately turned around and had to take my vehicles over to the assembly holding area to put it on the back of a C-130 to go to Afghanistan. And because we had been doing so many rehearsals up until the real-world mission and then come back, we missed an upgrade, and that's why I didn't go to Afghanistan. And had, and had I gone to Afghanistan, I probably wouldn't be standing here right now because it was after that deployment, after they pulled us off of that, that I actually became a Christian. So, um, anyhow. so But we would do this, you know, and... <clears throat> The thing about the field training exercises or FTXs were, were that they prepared us for many of the things we would face on other FTXs. I mean, equipment would break down, right? And, and we'd have a little bit of challenges and we'd have all these different things and it prepared us in some ways. And we'd have to set up camouflage nets over our equipment. We'd have to do everything right. And so in some ways it prepared us as we rehearsed and we went through these kind of things. This is kind of like spiritual disciplines, Okay, which is not the point of today's sermon. I'm just trying to give you an idea of where we're going here. So this is kind of like spiritual disciplines, you know, like spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, prayer, you know, devotional time, 
meditation on God's Word, silence and solitude. I mean, I can, we can go and list all the classic disciplines. Um, and, but, you know, that's kind of like what the field training exercises were like, right? However, life generally doesn't work this way, right? I mean, you don't usually get to train up several times for every situation that you're going to face. For most people, let's just take it with jobs. For most people in most jobs, there's no, there's no training exercise before you go out. I mean, it's not like the guys that are working in the steel mill go out and, and they make pretend steel for two weeks before they make a batch of real steel, right? Or, or guys that do sales. It's not that they go out and do pretend sales with other salesmen and try to figure out you know, their strategies for selling, so to practice, to get ready to go out for the real sales time. No, they're, they're doing a lot of this stuff on the job, on the job training, right? Now, it, it's, it's not to say that there's not training, because there certainly is. I mean, think about teachers. A lot of teachers will have in-services, and they'll do training. And a lot of the salesmen, they may have go to a special seminar to learn, to focus on one particular skill or whatever. And maybe we've gone to school for different things. I'm not saying there's not training, but just most of the time in the real world, in the non-emergency services jobs and non-military jobs, we don't get to train up for every situation we're going to face, right? It's kind of on-the-job training. You're out there. As the situations are coming at you, you have to respond to them. So in some ways... The non-military jobs and the non-emergency jobs are actually a better illustration of what the Christian faith is like. Don't get me wrong. I said in some ways, not in every way. In, in, in some ways, the idea of the military and things like that, Paul uses it as an example of, of a good soldier, you know, training us to be good soldiers. So I know those passages of Scripture. But in some ways, these, these non-emergency service jobs, these non-military jobs are a better illustration of what the Christian faith is like and, that's, and one of those ways is what I want to talk about today. Here's, here's the way that they're better. There's not a training exercise. Yet I think often in the, in the Christian faith, we think there is a training exercise. But I think we need to look to the, to the non-military jobs, to the non-emergency service jobs to understand that, there's not, that that's a picture of the Christian faith. There's not a training exercise for everything. I mean, we do training ground here at OCCA, but that is actually probably not very helpful for most people's Christian walk. We are learning the Bible, we're learning those things, but if it's just an educating the mind kind of thing that's going on, and I'm not against that, but I'm just saying those training exercises get us ready for, for eventualities that may never come up. But actually, and practically living out our Christian faith every day, we get bombarded by what's coming at us, and we have to react in the moment. Right? I mean, we can't say, okay... I'm going to just pretend that my wife has had an affair and I'm going to walk through it with my brothers here on how I'm going to react if she has an affair. I mean, nobody does that, right? But that kind of stuff happens in life. Or I'm going to just pretend that I've lost my job and go through how that might look, right? But nobody does that. 
Right? We don't practice all of those kind of things. We don't rehearse all those kind of things. And that's the kind of stuff we would do in the Army with the field training exercises. I mean, they would come in and there would be... They, they, a lot of times we didn't call it an FTX. We actually called it a field problem. Because there was a certain problem that we had to overcome. Right? But that's not really how life works. That's not really how the Christian faith works all the time. And I think that this is important for us to understand because... The reality is, most of what we do for discipleship in the Western culture is technically correct, yet not so helpful. You know what I mean? It's great to understand that, you know, I learned in training ground that baptism identifies us with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Oh, wonderful. What's that doing when you're out there in Walmart and the cashier has just misrung you up and overcharged you $100 and you caught it as you walked out and she won't give you your money back. It's correct doctrine. It's good stuff. It's technically not helpful though, right? At that moment, it's not really helping you. Again, I'm not beating this stuff up. I mean, I've had a lot of education like this and it's, it's good stuff, but, but don't take my word for it. Let's see what the scriptures have to say and see if I'm, see if I'm off base or see if this actually will make a little bit of sense. So we're going to be looking today at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 through 31. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 through 31. So I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles up from there. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You might be reading from a different translation. That's okay. They're just translations. All right? So here's what the Scripture says. By faith, remember we're in the Hebrews Faith Hall of Fame, right? We're talking about all these things that were happening by faith and, and how to live out our Christian life. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And if you don't know the story about Jericho, you're going to find out a little bit about it today. It's it's ridiculous. I mean, it's the most ridiculous battle plan in the world, but it worked. Right? When I, military strategists would tell you, don't do that. That's like the exact opposite how to win a battle. And yet, it was God's plan and it worked. Amen? And uh, then it says in verse 31, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab the prostitute was a resident of Jericho. And we're going to learn some interesting things. Maybe some people don't know about Rahab. Maybe you do know him, and that's okay. But when we think about this passage of Scripture, by faith they crossed over the Red Sea as on dry land, and the Egyptians drowned. By faith they walked around, uh, they encircled Jericho, and by faith Rahab gave a friendly welcome to the spies who had come before, and her family didn't perish by it. And I'm here to suggest to you today that there was no FTXs that got these guys ready for this. Something else got them ready. So let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and I, I just pray, Lord, that this, this sermon today will make sense to everybody. I pray that you have your way in people's lives today, that you literally transform us from the inside out, and Lord, that we would see that no amount of a training exercise is ever going to get us ready for some of the things that we face, but there is something that will get us ready for that that will get us ready for those things, and that we won't shy away from what it is that prepares us. Lord, speak to our hearts today. Have your way. In Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen.
<clears throat> so, in these three short verses, there's packed a ton of theological truth. Two times we see the nation of Israel come face to face with insurmountable odds. They had no official field training exercise that got them ready for this. There was no field problem. The leader at the time simply called them to trust in the power of God in order to deliver them from the situation they faced. There was no train up for this stuff. The leader just said, look, here's the deal. Let's go do it. The first time we see that Israel is called to cross over the Red Sea, i.e. retreat from their enemies without fear or hesitation. Now I want you to picture the scene, okay? <clears throat> the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, they, they're, they're, they're on their caravan away, and, and it's very interesting, if you go read the book of Exodus, Jesus was actually present there. There was a theological thing that happened, it's called a Christophany, that, that everybody thinks that it was the Shekinah glory of God, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that was leading the way. If you actually go read through Exodus, that's not actually who was out in front. Out in the very front was the angel of the Lord, and the word in the Hebrew that's translated there, the angel of the Lord, that particular one is what theologians believe was a pre-occurrence of Jesus Christ. The, the angel of the Lord is the same one who wrestled with Jacob and touched his hip socket, and then when he got done, he gave him the name Redeemed. He went from being a deceiver to redeemed. He went from being Jacob to Israel. Okay? So the angel of the Lord is out in front, and then the visible manifestation of the glory of God, and then the Israelites are in tow behind. Okay? And they're leaving, and listen, they've just went through all of these plagues that we learned about last week. Right? And when they left Egypt, they plundered Egypt. Like, they didn't just leave. They took a lot of the loot with them. That's what the Scriptures tell us. They took a lot of gold and everything with them. I mean, Egypt sent them away, didn't send them away empty-handed. They're like, here, just get out of here and, and take some wealth with you and just get out of our face. But, again, Pharaoh changed his mind. And he decided to pursue them and kill them in the wilderness. So here all this is going, right? And they get to the Red Sea. Now look, we're not talking about, you know, a battle-hardened, mechanized infantry who has vehicles they can get in and just shoot around. or No, no, no amphibious equipment that could just, you know, get out on the water. None of that. They get up next to the bank of the Red Sea and they're stuck like Chuck. Right? And they're starting to probably get a little nervous and starting to get a little freaked out. And then we see what happens is the, the Shekinah glory moves around behind them. And God speaks to Moses and He tells Moses to take your staff and touch it to the edge of the water and I'm going to separate it. And you're going to cross over. So imagine this scene. Imagine looking up at the immense walls of water held back. I love the way there's no movie, not any movie that depicts any of this stuff exactly the way the Bible depicts it, okay? But I love the way the Prince of Egypt depicts it, the cartoon. Because like when the lightning hits, you can see like the fish in the water, you know, on the sides. I mean, just imagine this immense water and, and the fact that they're, they're going to cross over and yet there's, a, there's something that happens that I think that just gave them like a ton of faith to step out and do it. And it's why I think the Egyptians were stupid enough to follow them. It says it right there in, in the first verse that we're studying today. It says, and they crossed over 
as on dry land. They didn't slog across the Red Sea in the muck and the mud. The Bible says it was dry. Now, I don't know if any of you have been out, you know, into Two Mile lately, you know, or, or let's just say the Allegheny River. Guys, you walk off in it, there's a lot of silt there. There's a lot of deposit there. I mean, you can get stuck real easy in the mud. Now imagine you've got thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people going across. Muddy's probably not good. But it's dry. And they cross over as though on dry land. Now, what could a training of this event look like if they'd have had training? Moses is like, okay, guys, God's revealed to me what he's going to do. So what we're going to do, we're going to practice crossing over this puddle. You know, I don't know, you know. And I'm just thinking, let's just say we go all the way to the exercise to cross over the Red Sea. I'm like, well, we're across. Why go back? You know what I mean? Like, let's not go back. That would be just stupid to go back. I mean, could you, could you see these guys sitting around trying to come up with a training exercise for this? It's crazy, right? Now, it's not to say they didn't have training. They did. They just got done watching ten plagues happen to the nation of Egypt. God has shown His face over and over and over again in the real world situations that they were facing and then He calls them to do this crazy thing and to walk across and trust that the water isn't just going to come crashing back down around them. No training exercise. No, instead, the way they had lived out their faith and how they had seen God work before led them to trust. And I want to suggest to you And I'm going to suggest this multiple times. If you want to grow in your faith and be able to face big challenges tomorrow, you better start trusting Him today in the little challenges that He gives you. Training ground isn't going to get you ready for it. And I love training ground. Small group isn't going to get you ready for it. And I love small groups. Worship service isn't going to get you ready for it. And I love a worship service. We're not called to live our faith out in here. We're called to live our faith out, out there. In the steel factory. In the department store that we work in. In the restaurant that we cook at. In the school that we teach in. In the hospital that we inhabit. In, in the home that we make. All of those places we're called to live our faith out, out there. In real life. In real time. And in living color. And that's what prepared them. They had seen God working. And so as ridiculous as it was, as crazy it was as it was that the waters mounted up and all those things that had spread, spread apart, they said, okay, we've seen God show up in some pretty amazing ways. And here's the deal, though. They had plenty of reason to doubt. Some of you are thinking, yeah, well, if God had done that, I, I would have done those ten things. I, I wouldn't doubt. I'd walk out there too. Except for when you go back, and I gave you homework last week to read through the, the different plagues. Every single time, except for the plague of the firstborn, it said that by their secret arts, the sorcerers of Egypt did the exact same thing. There was reason to doubt. 
There was reason to disbelieve if they wanted to disbelieve. That's the really cool thing about God. God gives us enough to trust Him, but not so much that it makes it a no-brainer. That way it's really faith. Right? And I think some of us are waiting for it to be a no-brainer. I mean, who's to say that the Egyptians coming after them weren't going to do the same thing by their own secret arts? Right? Then the second thing that happens here is Israel is called to cross over the Jordan River and inherit the Promised Land. And the first step in this plan is to take the city of Jericho. Now, this is in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, again, this is the ridiculous battle plan. It's the craziest battle plan. I mean, there were some crazy battle plans in Israel, some crazy ones that God instituted, and they were just insane. But this, by all accounts, in my opinion, is the craziest. Okay? you got to get a little background to what's going on here, right? So they're walking around in the wilderness for 40 years because 40 years prior to them actually going over and taking Jericho, they were sent to spy out the land. Moses was still alive. Moses sent them to spy out the land. They crossed over, and all of the spies that went over came back and said, there's no way. Except for a couple of them. Right? And those spies that come back and say, nope, it's a, the land looks exactly like it is and we should cross over. And all of Israel rebels against God and says, no way. No way. We're not going over there. And, and you can read this in Numbers 13 and 14 if you want to. But it's not part of your homework for this week, but you can read that. And I'm going to explain what homework is at the end for those who are maybe curious what I'm talking about. So... But So for 40 years, they wandered around in the wilderness because they wouldn't obey God. They rebelled against God. And so God says to them, I'm not going with you over into the promised land. I'm not taking you over there until everybody who wouldn't trust me is dead and gone. Everybody over a certain age, every male over a certain age had to be dead and gone except for the spies that were willing to trust. I'm not taking the people who won't trust me. Look at all this stuff that I've just done and you won't follow me over there? Haven't I shown? I mean, think about it. Egypt, the army of Egypt came after them, followed them down into the Red Sea. As soon as the Israelites pulled up out of bam, the water crashes over them and kills them all. By the way, there's archaeological evidence that shows that this is true. They have actually looked on the bottom of the Red Sea and there's an area of the bottom of the Red Sea that's full of Egyptian chariots and stuff absolutely happened this isn't a fancy story this is the truth so anyhow so they've done all this stuff and they've had all these battles and they've been set free and yet they won't follow after them and so they're wandering around in the wilderness everybody's dying off they get ready to cross over god says to him i want you to go ahead and go across and he tells joshua who's now in charge because moses has gone on to be with the lord and He tells Joshua, as you go over there, here's the plan that I want you to do. I want you to march around the city every day for six days. Don't make a peep. Make any noise. This is after they've spied out the land. After they've sent spies in to to kind of get a, you know, recon. You know, we had recon platoons when I was in the army. They would go and recon and come back and give a report and they make a battle plan based upon that. They go in, they recon, they come back. And this is the plan that God gives them. Go march around the city 
once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, I want you to march around the city seven times. And on the last time, I want the trumpet players to to blast on the trumpet, and I want all the people to shout, and the walls are going to come crumbling down. The craziest battle plan in the world. You're just begging for them to shoot you with their arrows and do all kinds of stuff from their walls. I mean, they know that you're coming to take them out, and yet here we're doing this, right? The craziest battle plan in the world. What would it have looked like to train up for this? Hey, guys, we're going to go over here to Rouseville. And I know that they didn't have a Rouseville, but I'm just pretending here. Okay, we're going to go over here to Rouseville, and we're going to surround Rouseville, and we're going to march around it. And just somebody let Rouseville know we're not going to take it. We're not really trying to fight with Rouseville. We're just trying to get ready. You know, the residents of Rouseville would be like, hey, what's this army doing here? Right? I mean, they can't really practice this. I mean, what's the best thing they could do? Practice marching in step? I guess, probably. I was in the army. We did a lot of that. You know, first thing we learned in basic training was how to keep in step. You know, but I'm not really sure what this would, would look like, this practice. I mean, and then what if they did a practice and God, wasn't, God didn't want them to take that city, He wants them to take this city, so on the seventh day they shout at the end of the seventh time around and the walls stand firm. Oh, that's a faith-building exercise. I thought, Moses, I thought you said this was going to work. Well, it will, or not Moses, Joshua. Joshua, I thought, well, it will when we're at Jericho. Really? This, you see what I'm saying? I mean, this, there's no training exercise, I, I think, that gets them ready for this. But I think they did have training in the sense of real-world experiences. They walked around in the wilderness for 40 years, and God continued to provide for them. And it tells us as they walked around in the wilderness for 40 years, this is the most amazing thing. Their shoes never wore out. It says that. Their shoes never wore out. Now listen, I'm not walking miles and miles and miles and miles and miles every week. And I can't get a pair of shoes that last me six or nine months. Let alone 40 years. That's crazy. They had all this provision. All God's showing up with the man. He's showing up every time they've got an issue. They've had this real world stuff. They've been taught to trust Him in the here and now with all of the circumstances they face. And so that He gives them this ridiculous plan. Says, go do this. Now, they had reason to doubt. There were times that the ground opened up and swallowed people who were rebelling against God. There were times that fiery serpents came in and, and bit up people and did all this. I mean, there's plenty of stuff that went bad in this time when they were in the wilderness. I think, though, that they learned enough while they were out there facing the real trials and tribulations, the everyday things of real life, that they learned enough to trust and follow God when their leader called them to. Now, here's the interesting thing that Philip Hacking points out. Philip Hacking uh, is an evangelical uh, Anglican uh, priest, and and he, he writes this in a commentary on the book of Hebrews. He said, Faithful leaders are vital in every age. But they will be ineffective unless they are followed by people who trust God's word. 
Now, I'm going to read some more here, but I want to go back and read that again. Faithful leaders are vital in every age, but they will be ineffective unless they are followed by people who trust God's word. The story of the Exodus and the very checkered march to the promised land would provide much illustration. To step into the waters of the Red Sea, confident of them parting and remaining so, for all to reach the other side safely, was certainly faith in action. There could be no trial run, no rehearsal to give confidence, equally the apparently absurd command to march around the walls of Jericho for seven days was a powerful demonstration of the effectiveness of God's promise made real through obedience. So the story of the prostitute Rahab, a most unlikely candidate for this chapter, becomes a vivid picture of faith proved by works more than mere words. And we haven't got to the Rahab story yet. I want you to understand that two generations of people reacted very differently to God's command to go over into the promised land. The first generation reacted in rebellion and said, we will not go, we are afraid, we do not trust you. And and don't fool yourself for a minute, that's what they were saying. And when God calls you to trust Him and to obey Him in the everyday things and you won't do it, you're, you're really saying, I don't trust you, Lord. And I know that sounds harsh, but guys, we have to understand what we're saying to God. None of us, I think, want to use those words, God, I don't trust you. But that's what we're showing by our actions when he calls us to obey, and we won't. God, I don't trust you. This problem's too big for you. My circumstance is beyond your control. And it doesn't matter how wonderful the person that's standing on this pulpit or, or our elders are or any of that stuff. I mean, you can have the most faithful and wonderful godly leaders in the world. And if the people of God will not trust and obey what God is calling them to do, those leaders will lead those people nowhere except for round and round and round in the wilderness. See, there's much in our world today that that teaches that leadership is the key, it's the answer to everything, but I'm here to tell you, my specialty is leadership. Working on my doctorate in leadership. And right now in in the academic circles, the discussion is happening around leadership is that there's a dynamic relationship between leadership and followership. And followers have to trust and follow. Guys, this is evident in every area. We, we think if we elect the right president of our country, that everything's going to turn around. Yet, what if we elect the right president and everybody's still a bunch of thugs? It's not going to do anything. And likewise, if we elect the wrong president and everybody is living the right way and following Jesus, it's going to change everything. There's a dynamic relationship between leaders and followers. And I'm not suggesting don't go to the polls. I'm suggesting that we as followers of Jesus Christ have to stand up and follow. We cannot just put it all on the leaders. I can't blame John Stumbo, who's the president of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, if ministry's not going well here. And guys, I've been at National Council when people did. When people stood up at general council and, and, and berated the national office of the Christian and missionary alliance because ministry was going bad in their church. And I'm sitting there going, what? 
You're the one that's on the ground there. You're the one that's to follow Jesus there. You're the one that's in your community. What does the national office staff have to do with any of this? And if this, is, if this message is grating your nerves the wrong way because I'm talking about it's not all on the leaders, I just want to encourage you that maybe that's the Lord trying to, to speak to you as a follower. To say that we have to follow. And I'm speaking as a follower to other followers. Not as the leader. Okay? But then you have the second generation. They trusted where the first rebelled. But there's more truth in this passage. Let's move along here a little bit. So what about a prostitute's faith? This passage actually contains at least one more major example of faith in action without a training exercise beforehand. And in many ways, it's the most radical. In many ways, it is the most radical example. Rahab is a prostitute in every sense of the word. Okay? And a member of an enemy nation to Israel. But she had faith to trust in God based upon others' experiences with Him and not her own. Rahab had had no encounter with Yahweh. Which is the unpronounceable name that, uh, of God. She had never, never met face to face with I Am. She hadn't seen His glory manifest in the wilderness over the tabernacle. She hadn't worshipped Him. She hadn't read His law. She hadn't seen any of those things. All Rahab had was the stories that were coming into Jericho about these people, this nation that was wandering around in the wilderness, that, that apparently had the mightiest God that ever existed. It's really the only God. Their God was doing wonderful things. And so the spies come in and they come to, to Jericho to spy it out and they, they hear that there's spies there, the city officials do, and Rahab has hidden them from them. And Rahab goes up and here's what Rahab says, just so that you won't think I'm crazy, okay? Rahab says this to the men. Before the men lay down, I'm quoting scripture here, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to uh, Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God of heaven above and of the earth beneath. That's Joshua 2, 8, 1, or, excuse me, Joshua 2, 8 through 11. You see, Rahab didn't have personal experience with God. But it didn't stop her from trusting Him. Nor did a lack of a special time of training. She knew the God of Israel by reputation only. And she trusted in His mercy and forgiveness that comes through repentance even though she was an enemy of God at the time. Rahab had no special training. She didn't grow up in the church, guys. She didn't grow up in the nation of Israel. 
She didn't have the Torah. She didn't have the, the inheritance. As a matter of fact, she grew up and, and she chose as a profession prostitution. Which we all know God's not okay with. No special training. No special anything. She just heard about him and the first time that she was called to trust him in a special way and in a personal way, it was for everything. The first time, it wasn't like, Rahab, I want you to trust God that he's going to provide a meal next Thursday night for your family. No, it was Rahab. If God doesn't show up, you're dead. You're dead when they find out that you hid those spies. You're, not only are you dead, your family's dead. She was going to lose everything. She had never trusted him for anything. The first time that she had to trust him was to trust him with everything. Now, I want you to understand that I think that there's many of us who are like Israel. Our past experiences with God provide all the training we need to trust Him. That's those of us who, who, if we were asked, are you born again? We could answer that question in the affirmative and mean it. We've got all of the experience in the world that we need to trust Him. We've seen Him show up time and time again. We've seen the miracles happen in our family. We've seen our family provided for. We've seen our church provided for. We've seen people healed. We've seen people set free of sickness and disease. We've seen people have, just have lives radically transformed. We've got all the reason in the world to trust Him. And yet sometimes, like the nation of Israel, we stand in rebellion and say, Nope, God, this problem's too doggone big. Now I want you to be honest. If you're born again and you've got something that you're holding back from God that you're saying, nope, God, this one's too big. I, I want to challenge you today to put that into His hands. Don't be, like the, don't be like the first generation in Israel that said, nope, we're not going to do this and have to wander around in the wilderness and never receive the promised inheritance. And I'm not saying you're not going to go to heaven. You're going to go to heaven. But listen... God wants to bless your life as you live here on this earth right now. And do not start thinking I'm a prosperity theologian. I'm not. There's suffering as we go through here on this earth too. Okay? But He wants to be your all in all. Right here on the earth. Right here and right now. He wants you to trust Him right here and right now. And there's a lot of us who would say, Yep, I'm born again. I've repented of my sins and put my trust in Jesus. But then I think there's others that are like Rahab who have no experience with God. Yet his promise of life is validated in the testimony of others. You didn't grow up in the church. You're like me. You didn't grow up in the church. Or maybe you're like some other friends that I have that grew up in the church and, and they were quote-unquote Christian because they went to church, but they never really put their trust in Jesus Christ. And I think that's maybe a lot of us. Okay? Nobody is born a Christian. It's impossible. And I have Christians tell me all the time when I say, how long have you been a Christian? Oh, I was born a Christian. <clears throat> you can't be born a Christian. It's impossible. Jesus said, unless you're born 
again, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. Why does a person get born again? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to realize that you need to be born again. And everybody likes to use Romans 3.23. And if you're a born-again Christian, stop using Romans 3.23 to lead people to Jesus. It's a horrible verse to use in that context. It says for the way, or it says, uh, excuse me, it says for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But for a person who doesn't know what sin is, it's not helpful. It's a wonderful truth, but it's not helpful for the person who doesn't know what sin is. People are like, and, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm, yep, I'm a sinner. And they have no idea what you're talking about, but they don't want to look stupid, so they don't ask. You explain to people what sin is. I mean, have you ever disobeyed your parents one time ever in your whole life? That's one of God's commandments. He says not to dishonor your parents. You've broken one of God's commandments there. Have you always taken one day out of seven and set it aside for nothing but the worship of God and rest? Well, I don't think there's any of us that can say we've done that. Okay, we're Sabbath breakers. That's another one of God's commandments. Have you ever told a lie no matter how small or insignificant? Then you're a liar. That's one of God's commandments. Have you ever taken anything that doesn't belong to you no matter how small or insignificant the value? The pen out of the back of the pew? No, that one doesn't count. That one, that's there for you to take. You feel free to take it. We have lots more. Cookie from the cookie jar when you were a kid? Credit for a job well done and you're not the one who did the job? Maybe you snitched an answer off somebody's test in third grade? Makes you a thief. People go, oh, wow, I'm wicked. I, I do have a problem. And you say, that's what sin is. See, because sin, according to the New Testament, is transgression of God's law. His perfect standard. You say, and you say to people, we'll say, you know, okay... So Nathan, you're, you're, you're admitting right now that you've stolen and you've lied and, and if God gives you what you deserve on judgment day, what's he going to give you? And Nathan says he's going to send me to hell if I get what I deserve. And I say, do you want to go to hell? And Nathan's like, no. And I'm like, do you think God wants you to go to hell? And he's like, I don't know. And I'm like, well, he doesn't. Do you know what he did so that you don't have to? Easter! What? I thought Easter was about a bunny. No, brother, Easter's about Jesus. He came, he lived a perfect, sinless life. Sin is only a penalty of death. I mean, excuse me, death is only a penalty of sin. You know what I meant. Death is only a penalty of sin, yet Jesus never sinned, but he died. He died for your sin and for my sin, and he was able to pay that. And he says that if you'll do two things, it takes two things, by the way, to get saved, folks. Two sides to the same coin. We have to repent and believe. We have to repent and put our trust in Jesus. We have to say, God, I'm not sorry for these particular things that, I'm done, that I've done. I'm sorry for being the type of dirtball who would do them in the first place. I want to be a different person. That's repentance. A heart that says, I want to be a different man. I want to be a different woman. And I trust what you did on that cross as the only way now, there's some people here today who've never done that. I know, I, I know that. Every time I'm led to do a message like this, I, and I, I know that that's, there's somebody here. If that's you today, look, all you have to do is tell them you're sorry and make them Lord of your life. Say, God, I want to follow you with everything that I've got. And he will come in and he will radically transform you. 
Last week I preached on God defending the weak and the defenseless, including those who intentionally put themselves into His care as opposed to defending themselves. This week we're talking even more about what it looks like. It was, you know, At OCCA we have a core value that says achieving God's purposes means taking faith-filled risk. This always involves change. The value doesn't say it always involves training. It says it always involves change. That we do have times of training. It involves changing us. It involves changing from being independent and self-sufficient into being people who are dependent on God and trusting in His sufficiency alone. What's God calling you to trust Him with here today? Is God calling you to trust Him here today with your, with your eternity? Is He calling you here today to say, put your life in my hands so completely and so totally that you will be born again, that you will be redeemed. I mean, some of you are petrified of dying. But when you put your trust in Jesus, that that fear goes away. According to the Scriptures, it says that it's swallowed up in victory. Some of you are born again and yet God is calling you to do things in your life. He's calling you to trust Him in certain ways and you're like, nope, I'm going to do it my own way. Stop it! The worship team is going to come back here in just a second and they're going, to, they're going to sing a song. And during that time, we're going to have the altar open up here and, and, and elders and wives and deacons and wives, if people come forward, if you see somebody come forward, you just come up and pray with them. Okay? Some of you today need to put your trust in Jesus. In the form of a first time commitment to follow Him. And some of you today need to recommit about the things He's calling you to do. I want to encourage you to walk up here when the song starts and say, God, I trust you. I want to follow you. I want to put my life in your hands. I want to trust everything that you have for me. I want to be able to go over into, into the promised land, which is the eternity with you. Some of you are saying, I've seen you work in, other, in, in my life and in others' lives and I want to trust you that, like that again. And others of you are saying, I've only seen you work through different people. I've only heard the stories about you, but it's enough. I want to be like Rahab. I want to trust you with everything. That's the message of Easter. It's not ham and deviled eggs. Though those are good. It's not scalloped potatoes. It's not colored eggs and Easter bunnies. Though there's nothing wrong with doing an Easter egg hunt. The message of Easter is that God is calling us to trust Him and to put our lives completely and totally in His hands, whether we're already born again or whether we're not. So we're going to pray. But before we pray, I'm going to show you the homework for the week. Now, the homework is, uh, it's intentionally called homework, spelled H-O-N-E, because we're sharpening ourselves, we're sharpening our sword. The Bible refers to the Word of God as a sword. Now, homework is, is, here's what it is. It's for two reasons. The first and most insignificant reason is so that you can check up on me to make sure what I'm teaching is correct. Some people say, that's the most insignificant reason? Absolutely. Because the second and most important reason is so that you'll start reading your Bible already if you're not, you know, regularly if you're not. If I get you in the Word by homework, then it served its purpose. I'm not concerned about proving myself to you as much as I am about getting you connected to God's Word. 
So on Monday, we have Exodus 14, 1-31, Tuesday, Joshua 2, 1-24, and uh, Wednesday, Joshua 6, 1-27. These are about the three things mentioned in the passage from Hebrews. Right? These are the three incidents mentioned in the passage of Hebrews. Then Thursday, we have a similar story from Esther, where she is called to act, not train. Verse 14 of that passage really drives it home, of Esther 4, 1 through 17. That's the one that really drives it home, that she's called to act and not train. And then Friday, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. It shows us that our faith calls us to actually do something, not just train up just in case. Rahab's actions are actually used in this passage from James. Guys, you say you have, this passage in James is the one that really bothers grace-filled Christians. It says, you say you have faith, but I will show you my faith by what I do. If you're not evidencing your faith by a life of works, then you don't have faith, according to James. And Saturday is the bonus, especially verse 5. It's Matthew 1, 1 through 17. It's one of the genealogies of Jesus. Oh, it's a good reading. But you need to read it because in verse 5 it shows that Rahab, this prostitute, is actually Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma. A Gentile prostitute is redeemed so totally that she's put into the lineage of the Messiah. I mean, if you don't think Jesus can redeem you, Woo! That one's crazy, friends. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you transform lives today. I just ask that you would get a hold of people's hearts. I just ask that the example of Rahab, a prostitute, a Gentile prostitute, an enemy of you, would speak to each one of us in such a bold way that our lives, we would commit them to you and say that we're going to follow you no matter what. And we just ask you to have your way in people's lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.